Hey, everybody. This episode is brought to you by Lift Big, Eat Big's new workout program, The Phalanx Method. Coach, powerlifter, strongman, and historian Brandon Morrison took a unique approach in his creation to this three-block, six-month-long effort. Using ancient sources and modern techniques, he was able to recreate the training of one of history's most destructive military forces, the phalanx. And that's not just the sales line either. This is only three days a week in the gym, and it's brutal. I've uh, competed in powerlifting, CrossFit, and spent way too much time doing brutal army PT. And this is the hardest thing I've ever done before. And uh, you can do it at a commercial gym or, like me, from your garage. Uh, He also includes little historical tidbits every week to keep you interested and to keep you hooked. If you want to challenge yourself or just try something new... Go to www.liftbigeatbig.com and enter the promo code DONKEY to get 15% off. The Phalanx Method. Are you ready to become a warrior of oak and bronze? Good evening from Baghdad. One of the world's oldest cities has become one of the world's newest power centers. As soon as major hostilities broke out between the two oil producers, Iraq and Iran, we came here to Baghdad to watch OPEC at war to look in particular at a regime seeking supremacy in the Gulf and at its remarkable president, Saddam Hussein, one of the least known but most effective rulers in the Middle East. As the conflict between his country and Iran got underway earlier this year, it was Saddam Hussein who declared, whoever climbs over our fence, we shall climb over his roof. Hello, welcome to another episode of the Lions Led by Donkeys we podcast. Do this. I'm Joe. I'm Nick. And Nick is over there making quiet, chewing noises into the mic. We're doing sound checks. And I'm pretty sure this counts as another war crime in the Iran-Iraq war. No? Um, but anyway, we're on Iran-Iraq what? part three <laughs> now. Um, so if you haven't caught part two or one, go back in time. Listen I would. to them. I definitely would. Yeah, there's some there's gems in there you don't want to miss. And... Uh, yeah, they're good episodes. Because we're not. Because I already, I just found out part three. We're not covering a magician. There's no. a magician in part two, so you need to go back. The magician's the only part that Nick remembers. So I remember more. It's just the magician's literally the best part. Um. So the last episode we left you with uh, the Iranian city of Kormshar falling to Iraq for the low, low price of its entire military offensive capabilities. It was still locked in the siege of Abaddon, with the Iranians bleeding them dry and having no way to stop the Iranian navy from giving them the finger. The Iraqi military strategy of kicking in the door and hoping the whole structure came down ended up being about as wrong as anybody who's ever been around wrong about anything in the history of everything. So, did Iraq see that as a win taking the city? Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I would imagine uh, they had like coins minted and shit. Nice. Yeah. I would like that coin. So instead, Not really. the Iranian populace. <laughs> Uh, did not run from their government, but said flocked to it and swelled the ranks and rallied around the revolutionary government and uh, created new whole new branches of the military. They had so many volunteers. Um, so many of these volunteers, I told you in the last episode, we'd finally get around to talking yeah. about the... So this is where I'm going to get chewed up for pronunciation, and I did my best to only have to say the word once. Um, so hopefully it's Let's better. Go ahead. Go ahead. Hopefully it's better than the War of eighteen twelve episode. I got <laughs> fucking eaten up for St. Blandsburg. You'll have to forgive me. Yeah, you have to forgive me. I am from the Midwest. I still, even though I haven't lived there in over ten years, I still sound like I'm from the Midwest. Uh, so anyway, you put ranch on everything. I do it's not. Fucking ranch terrible. is disgusting. I don't know why you do it. Why are you the way that you are? 
Uh, I say the same thing to you. Many of these volunteers had flown to the Revolutionary Guard Corps' newly created wing called the Besiege, or which was Persian for the Mobilization Resistance Force, which is what I'll call it from here on out. Um, what? Can you go back? What was that? No. No, I'm not going to do it. You can't make me. Uh, I didn't catch that. So it was established in April of 1980, um, and I will call them the MRF for the sake of my pronunciation. Uh, the MRF would require almost nothing in regards to uh, enlistment prerequisites. And I mean nothing. Uh, for reasons that we'll go into for their actual sole mission a little later, and you'll understand why well, they just needed bodies. I honestly imagine they would like not really give a shit since they had high school kids out there. Yeah. Um, and when you find out what these guys were used for, you'll find out why they didn't really need anything. Oh, okay. Um, you didn't need any training weapons or even all your fingers. Instead, you just sweet. <laughs> instead, you would just need all uh, a love for that sweet, sweet martyrdom. And there'd be plenty of that. Um, revolutionary speakers and religious teachers would go on tours through the countryside and to local schools, encouraging people to join. This is partnered with an intense media campaign through this atmosphere of patriotism. Maybe some of it forced. I mean, remember what would happen to the perceived enemies of the revolution just a couple years ago. Um, Everyone not already running to the recruitment offices was swept up. This included the young, some down to age 12, some even younger than that, the crippled, the unemployed, and the elderly, some in their fucking 80s. Fuck. (laughs) (laughs) Um, For the most part, uh, like the people who began the Iranian revolution, they are mostly from a poor peasant background. Many of them were illiterate. Uh, Meanwhile, back at Abaddon, the Iranians were finally getting ready to break the Iraqi siege. On September 22nd, 1981, a year to the day of the Iraqi invasion, uh, the Iranians' uh, plan was put into effect. Now, I personally like to think that this uh, date was picked as a giant Iranian middle finger to the Iraqis, but that isn't a historical record. I mean, it's exactly a year after they invaded. Ooh. That date, they had to remember that date. Yeah. Um, That's got to burn a little. Yeah. Um. Anyway, in the middle of the night, the Iranians infiltrated a mind-blowing amount of troops to surround the Iraqi forces. How many people do you think they could infiltrate here? A couple hundred, a couple thousand. I'm going to imagine those numbers you just gave me, there's probably way more. 30,000. Yeah, I figured. 30,000. They managed to sneak 30,000 soldiers How? Ac- across the Bamachir River. <laughs> the magician. Yes. Um, so they... they Infiltrated across the river and closed off almost all of the Iraqis' escape routes. Side note here. I'm sourcing the source I'm using for this said, quote, the Iraqi military had failed to properly scout out the surrounding area. Which uh, might just these be these motherfuckers the, don't what? <laughs> yeah, this may just be the biggest underestimation or the b- biggest understatement in the like the history of military history. Like they just they just didn't scout. Like thirty thousand people isn't it exactly a trickle. It just goes to show that Iran has a magician too. Hell, the magicians. That's what's going on here. Um, just whoops, those 30,000 dudes totally snuck <laughs> yeah. past our blind spot. Um, as soon as the ground forces were in place, the Iranian Air Force began to bomb the piss out of the Dugan Iraqis. The Iranians had achieved total air superiority at this point. Any Iraqi attempts to defend against the air assault were brushed aside. The bombings had added effect of severing the continuity of the Iraqi lines and left small pockets of soldiers scattered throughout with no way to support one another. They're easy for the Iranians to support and destroy one by one. Fuck that. Um, within a few hours, the Iraqi force of about 60,000 retreated. They responded, uh, sorry, they abandoned their heavy weapons and ran for their lives using ra- uh, rafts and pontoon bridges to flee across the river. 
The whole time they ran, the Iranians tore them to pieces from above with attack helicopters. The shattered remains of the Iraqi forces attempt to reform themselves on the banks of the Karun River, but they were greeted by an entire Iranian armored division. Fuck. Yeah, it's not a good day no. to be an Iraqi soldier. Um, uh, this ended pretty much any organized attempt by Iraqi commanders to reform their army. Uh, this time there wouldn't be a retreat. There would be an absolute rout, leaving behind 1,200 soldiers to be captured. Like I was saying in part two, this is all swinging Iran. Pretty much. It does like, for quite a while. I haven't heard anything negative that's happened to him. Yeah. Well, the invasion Other is not good. Other than them not really having a, a magician. They don't seem to need one. Uh, so as I point out in the last episode, um, uh, Saddam did not take kindly to military failures. So uh, almost immediately after the battle was over, Saddam recalled seven of his top commanders to Baghdad and had them shot immediately. This would kind Ooh. of become Saddam's main way of showing his displeasure with the military's performance. I went with six in part two. So seven. Seven. Okay. Yeah. I was off by one. Yeah. Um, it was around now that uh, Iraq knew that they were going to be kind of permanently on the defensive. Uh, Iran, however, would not. They would galvanize their first real victory of the war. Uh, though, personally, I would count Kormshar as like a victory, too. I mean, it was they didn't keep the city, but they annihilated yeah. the Iraqi army. Um, but in this case, they actually drove the Iraqis from the field and won. Um, so then in January of 1981, Iran would attempt to kick the Iraqis off their land and send their retreating back to Iraq in one fell swoop. So what took them so long after their crushing victory at Abaddon to go on the offensive? Well, it's because the Revolutionary Guard and the army fucking hated each other. Uh, to make matters worse, the two branches had different supporters within the Iraqi government, each demanding more glory for the side that they supported while denouncing the other as counter-revolutionary. Uh, Iranian President Abdul Hassan Bent Bani Sadr supported the regular army, while his own prime minister, Ali Rajai, supported the Revolutionary Guard. As Revolutionary Guard began to get all the glory, because pretty much all these victories are Revolutionary Guard victories. And if, like, a random volunteer militia wins something, Revolutionary Guard. I, I remember the Revolutionary Guard being some brutal motherfuckers. Yeah. And um, so what, after, he, uh, after uh, Rajai started getting all these victories under his belt, because he's the Revolutionary Guard supporter... Benny Sarah began to fear for his position and maybe even his life as rumors began to go around that he was a military loyalist. Therefore he must still be loyal to the deposed Shah um, to prove that he was just as revolutionary as everybody else. He marched right up to the Ayatollah who remember like he controls everything yeah. uh, and begged him to allow him to take personal command of the regular army. Um, if you're familiar with history at all or our show, you know how badly these scenarios play out. no, head of state should ever take personal command of the yeah. military in, in the 21st century. I should point out this isn't the time of Kings and emperors and shit. And I also don't think we cover anything that really has a really good ending or any happy it, parts it, to yeah. it. No, no, we are ever. the lions led by donkeys. <laughs> it's fair. Um, well, I had a happy ending for the emus. That's true. I actually enjoyed that one. <laughs> so firstly, Bonnie Sauter had no military training, nor has he ever functioned in any capacity where he would have learned military leadership skills. Secondly, uh, a competent military might be able to make up for a shitty commander. That was something that Bonnie Sutter did not have. At this point in the war, the regular army still had not really been put together from its pre-revolutionary purge days. Um, they had a few hundred tanks, but not nearly enough infantry. So no problem. They could just borrow some from the Revolutionary Guard, right? Oh, yeah. Nope. Bonnie Sutter wanted this to be a 100% army victory. That meant he could not use anything from the Revolutionary Guard, and the Revolutionary Guard was going to give it to him anyway. So instead, his army would just go without. There's a lot of armies at play here. 
Yeah. You got the high school kids. Well, they're all pretty much Revolutionary Guard now. Yeah. It's, it all boils down to Revolutionary Guard and everybody else. Oh, okay. Um, because of the purges, no one had ever managed to be promoted to fill those gaps who actually knew how to run an offensive, uh, let alone a combined arms offensive, because this is going to involve air and yeah. infantry and tanks. Uh, to make matters worse, even though uh, even before the revolution, uh, Iranian army was uh, pretty advanced. Uh, the armor that they had, they kind of fell into the same boat as the Iraqis of like, we just want really cool shiny stuff um, because uh, they were so inept they couldn't actually carry out maneuver training before the war yeah, and before the revolution. Okay. Uh, so now they would totally be fucked. Um, and the forces they did have didn't even have enough ammunition. Yeah. Sweet. To make matters worse, they planned the attack towards oh, Susangird uh, in the raining season on a plane that was pl- prone to seasonal flooding. <laughs> um, and when it did flood, it would turn into a muddy quagmire. Everybody knew this. He'd made the plan anyway. <laughs> Giggity. Um, the whole plan also required surprise. But the area the plan called for uh, for Iranian tanks to advance over was massive, making it really easy for them to be spotted as they made their approach. Um, so the main attack began January 5th after a short artillery bombardment. Why a short bombardment? That's all the ammo they had. Figured. About a couple dozen rounds. Yeah. <laughs> that was it. All right, good. <laughs> yeah, good enough. <laughs> um, the ground, as I point out, was a shit field of mud, requiring the tanks and infantry to use the only single road that led through the entire area. Did, did they learn their lesson? Oh, you bet you didn't. They didn't. Yes. Um, it's hard to surprise anybody when you're driving 300 tanks in a straight line down the only goddamn road towards the city you're trying to capture. <laughs> but that's what they did. Their whole thing on, yeah, you don't need a plane. Nah, you don't need a train. Th- this will probably really work. backfiring. Uh, the Iraqis quickly spotted them and planned for the defense. Um, Iraqi forces blocked the road in the front and surrounded them on two sides. Um, while their tanks also cannot maneuver in the mud, they didn't have to. They simply dug them in yeah. up to the turret. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah. They turned them into giant pillboxes. Yeah. Um, that's fine, though. They wouldn't be driving anywhere. Uh, what happened next would actually be the largest tank battle of the entire war. As the Iranians lacked any kind of recon, they drove right into an Iraqi trap the next day on the 6th. Neither one of the sides learned anything. No. Fuck. Nope. Uh, the Iraqis poured fire on them from all sides. The Iranian forces tried breaking through by just driving straight down the middle of the road at them. It, well, everything's did, been swinging Iran, so it, it honestly... It did not work. Ooh, okay. Um, the entire brigade that charged on the road was torn to pieces. Uh, some attempted to maneuver off the road where they got stuck in the mud and either died or had to abandon their tanks. Um, the entire uh, first and second brigades were destroyed, uh, but the they were completely refused to abandon the attack. What actually happened is one brigade... that Because remember, they're in, a, they're in a straight conga line here. Yeah. As one brigade is destroyed, the other one would just keep pressing the attack, and they would get destroyed. The next one just pressed the attack. And the infantry is the last one in the column. So they're seeing all that shit ahead of them. They're like, yes. Oh, yes. This is reminding me of that shitty games on all phones or computers where you could like... They have to go in those little lines, and you just put like little pillboxes or little yeah. like soldiers down. That's what I'm getting. It's the, yeah, this is like a really shitty version of Space Invader. Okay, because <laughs> I mean, if you're the tanks on the other side, they're moving laterally, and then they're gonna they might zig and zag or whatever, and you just <laughs> they pew, might get pew, stuck. Pew, pew, pew. Well, down goes the Iranians. <laughs> I don't know. Um, so uh, finally, the stormtrooper meets red shirt battle tactic caused Iranians to retreat. But the defeat was massive. A full 17% of all of the Iranian military tanks were destroyed or captured. Uh, to make matters worse, our boy, for our boy Banny Satter, his fuck-up led to his impeachment. 
Fearing for his life, he fled from the country dressed as a woman. Yes. He lives to this day under a heavy police watch in a palace in France under constant threat of assassination. Dude, that's awesome. <laughs> um, so, Do you think he was a pretty woman? Probably not. He was already like it. He was. I hope 40, he still had a beard. Least. I hope he still had a beard while he was. Oh, yeah, I'm a woman. I wish I could find a You're picture. You're a really masculine woman. <laughs> yeah. It's a full beard you have there, sir. <laughs> Ma'am. <laughs> um, so. It was after this that the war was truly brought to a standstill. Losses on both sides had been huge, and the Iraqi military had shot itself in the dick so hard it couldn't do anything other than dig in and wait. Both sides began constructing trench lines that looked like something on the Western Front. And if that wasn't even World War I enough for you, it gets worse. So you remember, the Iranians are the, sorry, the Iraqis are dug in an Iranian territory. Um, they still control uh, Kormshar. They still control their entire approach that they took. Um, they're going to sit back and let that be, which leads us to something everybody knows about this war. And that is the human wave attacks. Yes. Uh, the Iranian military is so hard pressed for good equipment and anybody who's even remotely trained. Uh, so they had to figure out a uniquely horrifying way to preserve them. Remember those MRF militia guys? Yeah, they're it. Uh, I, well, it was their time to shine. Uh, so it was their job to charge across no man's land, fucking stomp clearing it, minefields. And, and, uh, did, if they survive the running across the minefields, their job was to just jump on machine gun positions. Um, was the, this a voluntold or like, yeah, we want to do this. No, no. Oh no. I have, uh, firsthand survivors accounts. This is absolutely a voluntary. Holy um, shit. Fuck that. Their whole plan was, um, there wasn't, they weren't like attacking this huge section of the line. So they would pick out, what they thought might be a weak spot in line. Now, remember what military intelligence was at the time. It was probably just some lieutenant going, that one looks pretty weak. Yeah, but I'm also going off of, these motherfuckers don't do recon. No, no, this was the recon now. Oh. Um, <laughs> so what would happen is, is they would charge across the line. Worst case scenario, they clean clear a section of the minefield with their bodies. Um, best case scenario, they clear a section of the minefield with their bodies because there's always minefields. And they make it across to the other side. At that point, they're supposed to draw fire. Um, if they get close enough to the line, they're supposed to smother that portion of the line with their bodies. And then, immediately afterwards, is when the Revolutionary Guard and the army would come in. That's not a good tactic. They were literally Operation Human Shield from the South Park movie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Except that went bad in the movie. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, in the Iran's defense, the movie came out after the war. How, could they, how could they know? It's true. Um, I'm going, I'm really going off that this Lieutenant looked at a map and they drew a line and yeah. whatever spot had the like least amount of ink on it. They're like, that's a weak part of the line. Kind of. I mean, it, it wasn't that much more complicated than that. That's honestly what I'm getting. So the craziest part, um, about these attacks is for them to even have an, I like an iota of a possibility of being able to work. They had to be a surprise. How can you surprise them? Do it at night with no support whatsoever. I was thinking a magician. Iran, the, Iran doesn't have magicians. We don't know. We, we have we have an idea. Harry Potter isn't coming to fucking save him. First of all, I'm not even. I don't even like Harry Potter. How could because I've never seen it. Then how do you not like it? Because I've never seen it. So, and I know he's not a magician. I mean, because I know people will probably take. I carnally love that. your mother, and I've never met her. Do you? No. Oh. Anyway, Dad. Um, <laughs> I look just like you. Uh, no, so, you don't. So the, the craziest part, like I said, is like they had to be, they had to take place in the middle of the night. Some, they would do some of them in broad daylight, but there'd be no preparatory artillery bombardment or air support. 
I'd imagine this isn't a surprise as soon as bodies start landing on landmines. Well, I mean, that's like it, the goal was to try to get as close as possible, as fast as possible. Um, and the thing is, is like the other Iranian units wouldn't even commit <laughs> until, until they thought like, hey, it's kind of working. <laughs> so like literally sometimes you just run out there for absolutely nothing. So guys are scat dancing across the fucking minefield trying yeah. to make some go off. Meanwhile, the dude's like back in the other trench like, eh, it doesn't seem to be working. We're not going yeah, out there today. Yeah. As like all these dudes are fucking dying. I mean, <laughs> but sometimes like the Iranian version of Zerg Rush really would work and this would succeed. Um. And this is where I told you that I have uh, first-hand accounts. One MRF veteran was a guy named Mehmed, described it like this. Quote, when you do not have weaponry, you have to break the enemy line with your body. Even the barbed wire, sometimes we couldn't cut it, so we just throw ourselves on it. So we'd pe- And everybody behind us would pass over us. Our casualty rates went up and up. Sometimes 70, 80, 90% of our units were destroyed. Fuck. He described it as, quote, beautiful. What? Yeah. Huh? Yeah. So I think the only thing he regrets is that he survived. Probably. <laughs> it's like, I wasn't a part of that fucking heart. One thing I can say is I've accidentally fallen on some fucking like not razor wire. Thank God. But like sea wire. Yeah. I've yeah. accidentally Shit fallen hurts. on it. It's fucking stupid. I couldn't get out of it unless somebody was helping me. That's the point. Like, yeah, I guess it is the point. It worked. Yeah. And the funny thing is, it was our own defenses that I tripped on. Now imagine there's landmines like, oh, on the other shit. side. Imagine how many people accidentally get murked by their own landmines. Ooh. Because like stumble out of the trench to take a piss in the middle of the night. Boom. Oh, fuck. That's why I use a canteen. Yep. Piss on your buddy. Mm-hmm. Uh, so these attacks almost always ended with thousands of dead and wounded with very little to no gain. Um, they were accused of blowing them to pieces with their overwhelming superiority of just about everything. And when that didn't work, they just gassed the shit out of them. <laughs> Um, because we talked about the purges before. Um, so I don't know if this is planned or not, but the vast majority of the purge was centered on like the officers that took out. Guess, guess what they did like as a, as a job in the army, guess what they did. I, Chemical defense. What the fuck? <laughs> Chemical defense. And, uh, you know, also, uh, compare that with the fact that the Iranians had a, a massive shortage of, of protection equipment as we saw in that video, which 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 we'll talk about later. (laughs) Oh my God. Um, So the, at any point, um, and at this point in the war, and I said earlier uh, in a different episode, they said, uh, their lethality is about 20%. Now they've, uh, I mean, they've, they've tested their, their weapons in in real life and they've changed the, the formula. They came out with like, I don't know, the surge or the, the fucking, uh, uh, the blue flavored monster version of their <laughs> of their of their gas that they worked on the formula and it's perfected not it. Not a good flavor. Yeah, it's better than regular. That's and, true. And this, I think, Honestly, I don't just don't like monster. Yeah, me neither. But uh, the lethality is probably up to like forty or fifty percent now. I can go for a Red Bull. <laughs> you just had Red Bull. I did. And uh, so, like these gases would bur- uh, burst like over. Uh, Math, massive like human waves of these militia dudes wearing like t-shirts and shorts and with a 50% lethality rate 100% fucking poisoning and burning and blisters and their eyes and their lungs and everything not a good time Ooh. but I've heard it's beautiful yeah but, um, at least they didn't have to wear mop gear I think they would rather <laughs> um, this actually led to an interesting international argument uh, so the Iranians began to point out hey guys we're getting the shit gassed out of us because, I mean, imagine this is the 
eighties. This is not like World War Two yeah. or World War One, where like massive violations of every kind of law or convention of warfare is being violated by like, eh, whatever everybody's doing it. Um, I mean, this was happening in the day of live news. Yeah, people were watching this shit on TV for the most part, seeing pictures. Um, and Iran was like, "Hey, this is a fucking war crime. Can we get a hand over here?" Um, and nobody believed them. Everybody's kind of just doing that whole hand over the face thing, looking yeah. the other way. Like you know, I've pointed this out probably a dozen times now. But Iran's the international boogeyman. Nobody yeah. likes them. Everybody's on Iraq's side here. Um, so Iran um, uh, thought, well, if if this isn't going to work, um, well, we need to draw attention. I mean. Now we know why nobody wanted to draw attention to it, and that's because the Allies were supplying Iraq with all the precursors and industrial uh, things they needed to make gas. Yeah, but um, so they did this by inviting a BBC camera crew out to prove uh, what was being used. Uh, so a, a listener actually sent me this video. Uh, I'm not going to say who did it, but if you want to out yourself on Twitter, that's fine. Um, they sent me a video, which I will link uh, on there, um, and it's. So he has a theory that this whole thing was staged and it all went wrong. Um, and, and so it's either hilarious or like the most incompetent thing on earth. So in the video, Both? I, yeah, uh, in the video, Ir- Iranian troops dig up a mustard gas shell and unscrew its warhead. Um, so picture this. There's about 10 dudes, none of whom are wearing a, a total uh, protective suit between them and using a pair of pliers break up a mustard gas shell on camera uh, with a crew about 10 feet away. Also picture this before you dig that up, you're doing your dishes with your yellow fucking rubber gloves. And then you get told, Hey, go and dig up this fucking mustard gas. Can't like, yeah, the the only thing they're wearing on their hands are are what have to be kitchen gloves. Um, So then they, once they have the shell open, they begin pouring pouring out the liquid uh, because most people don't realize this, that the, the gas is actually stores a liquid. Once it hits oxygen, it, tur- it turns into a gas. Um, but they do this by introducing it into the air. So it immediately turns a gas and burns everybody They're around like them. They're pouring it into a fucking growler. Yeah, it's like a mason jar, <laughs> like a hipster fucking chemical <laughs> warfare agents. Um, so... Yeah, they, they, they start pouring it all out and... It, it's pouring out like it's a 40 or something and everybody gets chemical burns. Um, a cameraman ends up getting sent to the hospital. Um, it looks like rug burns. Yeah. I mean, th- those are pretty minor blister. Yeah. Burn. You want to see some nasty ones. You can look at Halabja. It's fucking gnarly. But um, the simple fact is uh, it was sent to us is obviously a set scene that they thought was going to make them look good. Um, like, hey, look, we're professionals at at taking care of this poison gas at the same time look we're getting gas spilling all over their yeah. fucking hands and they just fuck yeah and like one guy's pouring it into the glass and the and the other guy is like holding a glass which is a terrible idea yeah. and he's just spilling all over what look like look like the the thinnest nitrile gloves you've ever seen in your life he's just wearing that fucking all over them stupid cloth gloves that like auto shop sell for a dollar <laughs> and, i have those in my garage for people and, that are stupid and they don't even cover the wrists yeah and then pretty much everybody gets chemical burns. But uh, so the guy who sent it to me said it's it, it's staged and went wrong because if it was like an Iranian film crew, I'm like, yeah, it's probably staged. They're not that stupid because you'd think they've been dealing with gas a fair amount of time now. They, you learn quickly with these yeah. things. Um, you either learn or you fucking die. Um, but, you know, as a BBC crew, they all got mustard gas burns. They probably thought it'd be fucking sweet. Yeah. Like we're going to show off to these guys. Oh, God, deadly mustard gas. 
This really burns. Yeah. Everything just kind of tastes like lung fluids now. This doesn't taste like fucking mustard. Yeah. Uh, so that that was a PR stunt that went terribly. They actually ended up coming up with another uh, way to show Europeans that Iraqis were gassing them. The at, same crew? No, no. Oh, okay. I mean, Iran did. Oh. It, it was uh, they sent their casualties to Europe to get treated. <laughs> yeah. Uh, because, I mean, they have significantly better medical care and everything. Obviously, but, like, did they send, like, urgent? Well, I mean, it's, well, I mean, mustard gas care is, you know, there's immediate treatment and then there's, like, long care treatment because right. you're going to have to get your eyes fixed, your lungs fixed, everything else. Um, but I, I think it has something to do with, like, international treaties for war casualties. Like, there was... um uh, Iraqi war casualties being treated all over Europe and countries that weren't even involved there. Right. I'm not exactly sure the uh, diplomatic uh, lines that worked that way, but I mean, there's Iraqis and Iranians getting treated in Europe throughout the time. Oh, okay. Um, so anyway, uh, this back and forth meat grinder without end would go on for a full eight months before uh, anybody would attempt another offensive. Um, and they would uh, in November, 1981, the Iranians launched what was now called Operation Tariq al-Quds, an operation that could only exist through the immense incompetence of the Iraqi army. Um, that, so the Iraqis controlled almost the entire Khuzestan province still um, and uh, patrolled exactly 0% of it. Nice. Um, so I say this um, because the Iranians actually began their operation by building an entire fucking road straight through enemy territory so they could truck all of their force behind them. Yeah. What? They built a road right through enemy territory okay. so they can then drive their army down that road and then deposit it directly behind the Iraqis. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know how they pulled it off. <laughs> they pulled it off? Yeah. Um. So... Even though they managed to surprise the Iraqis, the fighting still lasted two weeks. And How did the road crew get fucking through? The Iraqis right, are terrible whatever, at dude. recon. They just don't... They, they don't like, give a fuck. Yeah. It's just an ongoing thing. Um, so the fighting lasted two weeks and killed two times as many Iranians and Iraqis, mostly due to their dependence on the human wave attacks. Eventually, the Iranians were able to retake the city of Boston. No fears, mass holes. It wasn't that Boston. Yeah. <laughs> um, and they you complete, guys won the World Series. And we get they it. completely disrupted the Iraqi logistical network because they just swooped in behind them. Within a year, by May 1982, uh, the Iraqi army was completely broken. Um, during the Second Battle of Kormshar, which held uh, for months when the Iranians were defending it, remember? Uh, right. Or for month, one month. Uh, but it was supposed to be taken in two days. Um while being defended by little more than a bunch of randos with whatever guns they could find, could only be held by two days by the defending Iraqis, uh, despite the fact that the Iraqis were dug in uh, behind reinforced positions, and unlike the Iranian counterparts who were defending it, they had uh, tanks, artillery, and, and air force supporting them. Jeez. Um, remember, the vast majority of the Iraqi army are Shia conscripts. Uh, they were treated terribly, beaten and starved, and that was just for training. Now they had been stuck out in the middle of nowhere for over a year being promised an easy victory as wave after wave of screaming religious zealots charge at them from all around the clock. Um, their will to fight a war that literally made no sense to them finally wore out. After the second battle of Kormashar, 33,000 Iraqis surrendered the most of the war Fuck. up to that point. Iraqi, uh, Saddam's army had become a shambling corpse of its former self. Well, uh, yeah, I could see why they probably felt that way. 
like you said in a uh, part two, the invaders yeah. had no like, why are we doing this? What the they, fuck? They didn't really have much of a plan other than let's just go take these two yeah. cities. They thought that was going to be the whole war. Like Iran was going to be like, okay, whatever. Just fold over. Yeah. Um, so clearly any idea of, you know, his true warrior army that we talked about, like, and then they were just natural warriors. Yeah, it just kind of seems non-existent. Yeah. Uh, had been shattered. Yeah. Uh, and at this point, no one could lie to him anymore. So like any good leader, Saddam settled down, looked at what happened, and accept that he led his military to ruin. I'm just fucking kidding. Oh, wow. You fucking got me. Was the magician there too? He blamed his entire military for failing him and began shooting people again. Um, If military leadership in Baghdad failed their goals, Saddam would have them brought out in front of the rest of the government and shot. Sometimes he'd shoot them himself. That's Um, that's really personal. The line of the, of the, I mean, remember he made his bones being a fucking executioner. Uh, So an assassin. So he's never been shy of violence. I hope the magicians in the background, just Alakazam. I don't, (laughs) Magician isn't there, Nick. <laughs> uh, the line for executions didn't end there, though. Some uh, soldier, soldiers who uh, violated Saddam's orders and broke and ran or simply retreated when ordered and the situation became hopeless were brought out in front of the rest of their comrades and executed. If their comrades did not take part when ordered, they would also be executed. An Iraqi veteran named Abdon, the guy we talked about before. Oh, he survived. Okay. Oh, yeah. Uh, he said it this way, quote, the executions, you just can't erase them from memory. I was sitting there with my colleagues, and there was a fuss outside. I saw two military ambulances show up. I asked my colleagues what was going on. He told me two or three soldiers, they're preparing them to be executed. The excuse was that they had left their position. I couldn't watch. I just heard two shot, or the sounds of the shots. It was very bad. Really very bad. The soldiers weren't alone, however. If an officer ordered to retreat, they too would be shot. Normally by the next commander in line. Uh, say what you will about uh, Saddam. His unhinged madness and insanity was pretty equal um i mean think back to like the other leaders that we've talked about who kind of lead through this way you have you know the louis our boy luigi cadorna yeah um the blessed one and and then you know we've talked about the soviets um you know they were soldiers get executed soldiers get like uh, luigi cadorna's decimation did not involve officers his officers just got fired yeah he fired literally thousands of them um but saddam you displeased them and you failed. You get shot. Um, the quality icon, Saddam Hussein. <laughs> Sometimes by the boss man himself. Yeah. I mean, things that, I'm just glad that somebody's finally paying attention to me. Why are you using your holster, sir? <laughs> yeah. I mean, honestly, also, those ambulances are probably fucking like stacked. They're probably really good ambulances with shitty people inside them. The ambulances? Yeah. I mean, I feel like if you're in an ambulance, you're not getting murdered all the time. Yeah, I mean, like, by training. They probably have some really good shit. Oh, because everybody's getting hurt all the time? Yeah. Getting their asses whooped? So where did you train to be a medic? I just hung out at Iraqi basic training for a while, (laughs) you know? Uh, So it uh, should be said around now uh, that Iraq, by all means, should have fallen apart at the seams. Under the stress, the losses, and the cost of war. But it didn't. It definitely did not. Um, so far, their army had been cut nearly in half and only had about 100 operational jets left. Even in the face of almost certain execution, desertion within the ranks is out of control. At multiple times during the war, Iraqi jet pilots would just jump in their jets in between missions and fly off to the nearest country <laughs> that would let them land. Hey, can I land here? Yeah, please. Yeah, not only would they land, they would give like people all the fucking intel they ever wanted. So, yeah. I'll spill the beans, dog. Yeah. Please. 
Uh, Saddam even knew his army was spent and withdrew from the Khuzestan entirely back to the Iraqi border to dig in and await the inevitable Iranian invasion. So the whole purpose of the war is shit can at this point. So much for that weak infrastructure. It was this time that uh, I believe this in the last episode um, that the international gears began to turn to keep Iraq afloat. So uh, at this point, U.S. President Ronald Reagan said, quote, we will do whatever necessary to prevent Iraq from losing the war. Nice. Uh, And this is not some secret either. This is like openly talked about during meetings of Congress and houses of representatives. So like this isn't some backdoor CIA shit, though they do get involved because of course they do. They're our third host. They are. They're Um, involved in a lot of our episodes. So uh, Iraq can only export about a half million barrels uh, oil a day at this point in the war. Um, which couldn't even foot the bill of the war, let alone fund the rest of the country. I mean, they're a petro state. That's how they afforded everything. Um, And that was when Saudi Arabia swooped in to begin pumping at least $1 billion a month into Iraq (laughs) just to help pay their bills. Swing a 20 my way. Yeah. Uh, 20 bucks. I mean, remember they were one of the people who like talked Iraq into going to war. Yeah. They're like, so, uh, how about you go take out those revolutionaries, Gassing bro? up their boy. Like, yeah. hey, man, you can do this, dog. Just fucking pumping up Saddam. Like, oh, yeah, dude. I mean, they weren't going to let him lose the war without getting a payback in their inf- in, like their investment. Because, yeah. um, I mean, say what you will about the Saudis. They're a country of ethics and morals, clearly. <laughs> uh, I, see, I see what you're going. <laughs> I see what you're doing. I, I don't know what you're talking about. That's all right. Because uh, it's, yeah, my jokes sneak up on you like a bone saw. Uh, they, so the U.S. also stepped up its game in order to damage Iran as well. They began to give Iraq massive no-interest loans to prop up the teetering regime. But that wasn't it. They began feeding Iraq satellite intelligence of Iranian positions, and American radar planes began to fly in real time in support of Iraqis on the ground, giving them updates of Iranian troop movements. More than 60 defense intelligence agency officers joined Iraqi government um, to provide combat planning and assistance. The U.S. also began active combat in support of Iraq. Lieutenant Colonel Roger Charles, who worked for the Office of the Secretary of Defense at the Pentagon, said that the U.S. Navy used specifically equipped Mark III patrol boats during the night with the intent of luring Iranian gunboats away from their territorial waters so they could be fired upon and destroyed. He said, quote, they took off at night and rigged up false running lights so that from a distance it would appear that there was a merchant ship and the Iranians would want it to uh, go out and inspect it. The CIA also actively bombed Ir- Iranian manufacturing plants in order to slow their arms industry. Hmm. And then there was the tanker war. Not the kind of tanker that I like. Oil tankers. Okay. Um, which was the name given to when both Iran and Iraq began waging economic warfare against one another in the form of attacking oil tankers, even ships from neutral nations, in order to deprive the other nation of oil profits. This was an obvious target. Um, that's how both sides were financing the war efforts. Right. Um, Iraq's Navy was already trashed. Um, they got around this by moving oil through Kuwait, which would then um, move, which is kind of funny when you think about a couple of years from now yeah. in, the, in, in this history arc. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, Iraq would then ship it to the international market on Kuwaiti flagged ships. So Iran, seeing the obvious switcheroo that was happening here, simply began attacking all Kuwaiti flagged ships, <laughs> um, crushing the Iraqi ability to export the oil and pay its countless loans that it was now using to stay afloat. Um, if you were to pick a country to come in and ooh, we just kind of accidentally on purpose go to war with Iran here, who would you pick it? Honestly, there's so many in my head 
I'll, I'll just tell you my answer isn't going to surprise you because yeah. it was the U.S. I don't know why that was a really strong one. The U.S. launched Operation Prime Chance and Operation Earnest Will, uh, where the U.S. deployed massive naval, air, and special forces contingent to the area in order to protect U.S. flagged ships. I know what you're saying, thinking. Why does this matter? They're U.S. flagged. Um, because uh, attack on a U.S. flagged ship under international law would be attacked on the U.S. itself. Right. Um, well, then the U.S. flagged all Kuwaiti ships, U.S. flagged ships, and dared the Iranians to attack them. Ooh. Um, this effectively guaranteed an Iraqi revenue stream as long as the war lasted because the Iranians weren't retarded. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're not going to go out there and pick a, a war on purpose with that because I have no doubt if like they, they were like, fuck it, keep attacking them. We would have gone to absolute war. Oh, yeah. Um, At this time? Yeah. Yeah. We at least we just started doing airstrikes. Yeah. Um, France sold them fighter jets, like I said before, and anti-ship missiles, while West Germany and the U.S. sold them pesticides and poisons that could be used to create a larger chemical stockpile. Yeah. What? So, yes, the U.S. contributed directly to Saddam Hussein. Supporting war crimes. That that means we we helped directly uh, have Saddam Hussein have weapons of mass destruction. Um, Now, we did not just sell him mustard gas or sarin gas or tobin gas, but we did sell him the precursors for all three of those. And West Germany, using actual Nazi scientists, uh, helped him design the plants to create these things. Now, this will actually disgust you more when we get to about 1988 and uh, the full extent of... Oh, we go this far. That's the end of the war is 1988. Holy fuck. Um, and you'll see the, like, the full extent of what Saddam was willing and able to do with his new stockpile. Um, so during this time, Saddam actually announced that he wanted to sue for peace. Uh, he, he knew he was losing. Why not? Right? Yeah. Okay. He, and he knew that... At this point, he just had to try to keep his country, but more importantly to him, his government intact. He didn't want to end up at the bottom of a rope. That would happen a couple years later, yeah. but not quite Spoiler. Yet. Yeah. Spoiler to anybody who blanked out of the last 15 years. Yeah. Um, 17 years. Sorry. Um, so he proposed an immediate ceasefire until terms could be agreed upon. Uh, the Ayatollah fired back that no peace could be achieved until a new government was in place. Because remember, now he... He just wants his Islamic yeah. revolution to spread. He wants that Ayatollah shit. Yeah. And uh, that was he, in part one. Yeah. Yeah. He furthered those means by assembling his own Iraqi government in exile, led by an exiled uh, Iraqi cleric. To counter this, uh, Iraqi health minister Riyad Hussein, no relation, um, actually came up with what I think might have been a good move. Um, he suggested that uh, Saddam could step down as president to achieve peace. Um, and then as soon as the paperwork is signed, he pulls the old little brother, big brother move and says, takes these backseas and just reassumes the presidency. The old razzle dazzle. Yeah. yeah. Hit him with the old razzle dazzle. Um, this probably wasn't a, a fantastic move. I'm, I'm sure the Ayatollah would have been like, okay, but now the government has to be in Baghdad and they'll be like, oh fuck, this isn't going to work. Saddam's <laughs> still here. Uh, but you know, at least he had a plan. Yeah. Uh, Saddam asked the rest of the room if anybody else agreed. And nobody did. Nobody probably nobody wanted to get shot. At like, this point, everybody probably looked over at Riyadh and was like, dude, you're a fuck. <laughs> like, Saddam's wearing his pistol today. Yeah. Fuck. He's wearing his pistol shooting pants. <laughs> um, so uh since nobody else answered, and I honestly don't even think it would have mattered if anybody else did, yeah. uh the health minister was executed on the spot personally by Saddam. <laughs> 
And uh, he then continued the meeting like nothing happened. <laughs> just the body. Just people getting, just cleaning up in the back. Like people like just doing the kick and chicken on the ground as he bleeds out of his fucking speed hole he's putting his forehead. Um, so uh, Saddam knew it was only a matter of time before Iran stormed over his southern borders. Uh, he ordered the Iraqi state to be committed to total war as the entire country shifted focus towards the military. Conscription ramped up and, and began to accept pretty much anybody with a pulse. Uh, I wonder and, what those recruiting commercials look like. Yeah, there was the recruiting commercial, just a white van showing up at your house. <laughs> someone shoving you inside. I can imagine that it would happen live. They're like, that looks like my house. Yeah. What, what is that? So it kicks open your door. <laughs> you for the glory of Saddam, get in the truck. Um, and I know I said before Saddam was spending a stupid amount of money on uh, on his military, but now he ramped that up to a full eighty percent of all the money that Iraq had. I mean, you have you effectively have Saudi Arabia and the United States paying all your other bills. So, <laughs> yeah. uh, Iraqi commanders devised a tactic that would buy them time, and they would be right. That's what I do with my roommate. And for the first time now, I don't know if this is they finally cracked a history book. Or they're like, or this is just the the obvious evolution of trench warfare because they've already dabbled in trench warfare at this point, and now they're just dabbling in uh, defense in depth. So um, they came up with this tactic to directly counter the Iranian human wave attacks because those were working, believe it or not. Um, and they figured out the same thing that the Germans figured out during World War One. And that was if you build trench after trench after trench supporting yeah. one another. Like, cool, if one trench is taken, we'll just retake it. And uh, then they, the Iraqis also had uh, a penchant for uh, stopping um, maneuver uh, of armor. Like, they were significantly better at using their tanks as, like, pillboxes. Yeah. Uh, so that's what they did. They dug them in all over the line. Um, they planted millions upon millions of landmines and uh, brought more poison gas than probably the Iranians you could even dream of to the front line. Um, Not good dreams. Uh, nightmares. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it, it, it worked, but we'll talk, obviously we're going to talk about that in the next episode. Um, and that is when the Iranians launched operation Ramadan, one of the largest land battles since world war two next week. Ooh. In part four. You're just going to leave me like that. That's right. I am tease. Tease, tease. You you have a uh, oh. horrible poison nerve gas death. <laughs> Blue balls. <laughs> yeah. I hope that isn't a thing. That, you know, it's the 21st century. That's somebody's fetish. It probably is. Like they sit around alone at night, like just hit and refresh on you porn, waiting for somebody to upload fucking top and gas erotica. I, I could see that. Honestly, I probably know some people. You're probably right. Oh, God. I probably do too. Yeah, uh, <laughs> that was a good episode. You know, I like that. This this series, I was I was originally trying to keep it to like three or four parts, um, and I might still be able to keep it to four parts. But I I don't want to. Cause you know what's going to happen is I'm going to skip something that somebody that's been listening to this series has been waiting to hear. And I'm sort of fucking yada yada my way through it. Um, it happens. There's there's quite a few uh, benchmarks that I need to cover. Um, that we absolutely will cover. Um, there's a couple supplementary episodes um, that will happen, um, but there's no way I can cover every event in, in an almost decade long war. It's the same reason why we're never going to do a whole story arc of world war. Yeah. One. Um, Cause I know we talked about that. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's an, 
largely misunderstood and unknown war that had every major evolution of modern military science at its disposal from helicopters to poison gas to nukes were in play. And yeah, there's so many little things going on yeah. in this but big it's, old fucking shit pile. But it's like uniquely Middle East. Um, and also, you know, I've probably said this a dozen times now. It's almost like a modern equivalent to the French Revolution where like a whole bunch of uh, nations who did not necessarily like one another and were almost at war uh, with one another all banded together to try to kill the Islamic Revolution in its womb. Yeah. Um, I mean, because at one point, both the USSR and the US and China are all supporting Iraq to try to kill Iran. Jeez. Like Iran's only real major supplier until a pivotal moment in history, which we will talk about, uh, was Syria. Hmm. Uh, and really all Syria ever did to support Iran was stop letting Iraq use uh, its oil pipeline. Because that's really all they could do. Yeah. Um, but you know, And also there's a lot of things that, um, you know, minute parts, um, kind of like World War One, where, you know, Iran goes into a mode here. Um, that can be compared to the Isanzo River battles, where it's like Operation One through Six, and yeah. nothing happens. I'm not going to cover all six of them. Um, I'll yada yada my way through that, and if you hate me, so be it. Um, I find the battles of the Isanzo River hilariously intriguing, but I can see why people get bored with after number eight. Yeah. It's the same thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Which is why the memes are great. Which, and we'll see a lot of that in this war that all gloss over um, to keep it entertaining and decently fast paced, which I feel like we've been doing. Um, so that's part three. Uh, thank you for tuning in. Tune in next week to find out uh, how Iran messes this up as this war goes. Everybody always messes. It's like this war. If this war had a tagline, it'll be like, and then it gets worse. Cause it, it's, it hasn't been good at all. No. No, uh, let's just say somebody figures out how to get their gas lethality up to about 80%. And someone attempts to uh, invade an island using tanks. Yes. It gets stupid. <laughs> uh, but And then people start launching ballistic missiles at one another. Uh, but we'll get there. Alakazam. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I feel like at this point, you feel like a major part of the Iraqi uh, military infrastructure is like an Iraqi Hogwarts. I feel like uh, I wish Saddam you were right. Gets a lot of his inspiration probably from the joys he gets from his magician. I feel like the magician's already fled now. I mean, people are airstriking Baghdad. He's not hanging around. I honestly feel like Saddam I mean, won't let him flee. That's probably right because he's we're, like, we're, "You bring me joy." We're we're talking like rabbit out of the hat magician, not, magician, not like no, yeah, Dragon totally Ball thinking Z the same magician. Thing. I'm thinking totally the same thing. Like he has like a little Pringleston. And he just opens it up like. Snake Saddam, ha. Huh? He's like, Saddam's just like, whoa, like fucking like freaked out. Like, holy shit. <laughs> I stole your nose. I stole your oh, nose. Want to see this thumb? <laughs> fucking moves his thumb. Unbelievable. All right. So that, that's all for this episode. Follow us at lines underscore by. Follow me at jcast99. Follow me at nickcastm1. And we will see you next week. Later. Hi, this is Nate Bethay, and I'm the producer of the Lions Led by Donkeys podcast. This show is brought to you by Audible, and as it just so happens, Audible is offering our listeners a free audiobook with a 30-day trial membership. Just go to audibletrial.com forward slash donkeys and browse the selection of audio programs. Download a title for free and start listening.
Once again, that's www.audibletrial.com forward slash donkeys to get started.